Father, thank you for sending your son. And we see that you speak through him, that he didn't speak his own words, but he spoke your words, Lord. And uh, man, Jesus said, whatever we ask for in his name, whatever we ask for that's according to your will that was revealed in him, that, uh, man, we will have it. Lord, if we could just see your will is that we would uh, bear much fruit and that our lives would be decorated with the fruit of your spirit, Lord. And, and that's our prayer today, Lord, that the, the fruit of your life, the fruit of your spirit would be multiplied in all of us, that the fruit of your spirit, the fruit of your life would be multiplied in everyone that hears this message, Lord, and that your seed that is Christ could be spread throughout the earth through that, Lord. We just thank you, Father, and we know that that's your will. We know that it's your good pleasure to bring forth your fruit in us, your life in us, Lord, and it is our good pleasure to let you bring forth your fruit in us, Lord, and we desire to bear fruit unto you. We desire to bear your fruit, Lord, and not the fruit of this world or the fruit of the serpent or the fruit that is from the serpent's death. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Father. Amen. Glory to God. That's the name of the message, Be Fruitful and Multiply. Um, I've been thinking about being fruitful and uh, being filled with the, the fruit of the Spirit um, the last couple of weeks. And I think, I think a lot of times in the body of Christ, one of the main areas that we misunderstand completely is fruit bearing and, and what it means to, to bear fruit. I think it's one of the most misunderstood things in the body of Christ, whether it be the, the fruit of the Spirit or the fruit of death and the works of the flesh. As I listen to a lot of people talk in the body of Christ, when I listen to them talk about the fruit of the Spirit or the works of the flesh, it's almost like they think those things are an intellectual choice someone makes, right? And that we make an intellectual choice to love or be filled with joy. I mean, you even read things, just choose joy. Well, if you could choose joy with your intellect, then why would you need the Holy Spirit? And why would it be called the fruit of the Spirit? I mean, it's called the fruit of the Spirit because it's something that comes forth from the Spirit, not from you making a choice. And so I, I don't think the body of Christ has understood how we can even bear fruit. I mean, there's a reason why it's called bearing fruit. That means something else produces it. You're bearing it, right? I mean, the branches on my satsuma tree, they're not producing the satsumas, they're bearing them. There is a vine or a root or something that's producing the nutrients that produces the fruit, and the branch is just bearing the fruit right? The branches don't make a choice to bear the fruit. And so I, I want to I look at this because it's all throughout the scriptures. God told Adam to be fruitful and multiply. You guys remember where God said that in the beginning? I know we tend to only look at that with the natural mind and think that he's just talking about populating the earth. But he wasn't only talking about populating the earth. What he was talking about was he was promising Adam to decorate Adam in the fruit of his life. He was promising Adam that he would cause the fruit of his life to be multiplied greatly in Adam. That's what he was doing. And if you look in the scriptures, when it talks about God blessed Adam, the Hebrew word there is barak. And what it means is God got down on one knee in adoration of Adam, and promised Adam, I will make you exceedingly fruitful. And that ought not surprise us, because we see that same promise confirmed when it comes to Abraham. God said the same thing to Abraham. He told Abraham, I will make you exceedingly fruitful. 
Walk before me, Abraham. Walk in my good work. Set your eyes on my strength in the strength of my life because my life can even heal deadness in the flesh. Walk before me. Set your eyes on the grace and strength that's in my hand and I will make you exceedingly fruitful. Right? So we have something that's a promise from God, which is that he will make us fruitful. He will make us fruitful by his doing. But I think in the body of Christ, we, we struggle to understand how fruit comes forth inside of us. We struggle to understand the heart is like soil or ground. And that words or beliefs are like uh, seeds planted in the soil. I think we struggle to understand that whole kind of a thing. So we relegate it fruit bearing to just, we're going to make an intellectual choice. You got to choose to love. Listen, man, in the day I got to choose to love my wife, I got a big problem. It doesn't say out of your choice for the issues of life. It says out of the heart. I got to wake up in the day and convince myself I got to love my wife. That means I got a deeper problem going on in my heart. If I can't just wake up and look at my wife and feel love pouring out of my heart towards my wife, that means there's a belief in my heart that is in the way. And the answer wouldn't be for me to choose to love my wife. The answer would be for me to get with God and find him uprooting whatever seed had gotten planted in my heart that was getting in the way of me just finding love pouring out of my heart towards my wife. You see? And it causes people in the body of Christ to despise unbelievers. We're real good at seeing fruit that is good and fruit that is bad. I mean, we're all good at that. It's called the knowledge of good and evil. Like every single human knows fruit that is born from death and fruit that is born from life. In the body of Christ, we become great fruit inspectors. We're real good at pointing out which fruit is from life and which fruit is from death. But then we got no idea about what produces it. So then we come and make it out as if they're making an intellectual choice to do that. They ain't making no intellectual choice to do that. They find something born in their heart producing that fruit. That's why it says the sting of death is sin. It says we were all our days in bondage through the fear of death. And so I want to talk about how we can be fruitful because none of us want to be barren and unfruitful in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus, do we? Any of you ever, I know we get to judging Christians that we think are, are having a hard time in life and having the works of the flesh manifesting in their life. I know we've gotten real good at looking at them and thinking they just don't want to live right. Is that, oh, it's just me? Man, I've had to repent more than anyone, I think. <laughs> no one's repented more than me. But listen, guys, we've got to come to the place where we say none of us want to be barren or unfruitful in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus. The body of Christ can't even agree within the body of Christ that we're all after the fruit of the Spirit, that we're all after that. It's not a question of whether or not we want to be fruitful or not. It's not, nobody wants to be barren or unfruitful. We all want to bear much fruit. We all want to bear God's fruit. None of us want to bear the fruit of death. None of us want to bear the serpent's fruit. None of us want to bear the fruit of the serpent's death. None of us want that. There's something in us that knows we're supposed to be exceedingly fruitful. Do you know that? You know, that's why it bothers you if you perceive yourself not to be fruitful. How many of you felt real happy when you didn't think you were fruitful? How many of you have looked at yourself and thought, I'm barren? Oh, hallelujah. I mean, who taught you you're not supposed to be happy if you're barren? 
Did somebody come and teach you a class? Or is there just something inside of you that knows? It's not as it ought to be if I'm not bearing the fruit of God's life. There's something in us that knows. The scripture says God put eternity in the hearts of man. And so there's something in us that knows we were created to be exceedingly fruitful. And what happens is we get to judging our lives by whether or not we think we see the fruit of God's life or whether we think we don't see it. It's hardwired in us to want to bear much fruit. And if there's a season where we, we, we don't think we're bearing fruit or we think we're mostly barren, man, I know in my own life, when I've walked through seasons where it feels like a dry land, where you feel thirsty and you don't think you see any fruit anywhere, man, you don't like it. You're, Lord, what's going on, Lord? I mean, even with like natural things, we got satsuma trees like I talked about. And, and we have these blueberry bushes. And man, there's some seasons where those things are just bountiful and hanging over with fruit. And I tell you what, when I wake up in the morning and I see the branches hanging over with fruit, there's just something in me that's like, oh, hallelujah. Right? But you know, there's other seasons where they're not as fruitful. There's other seasons where they're not bearing as much fruit. And even just with that natural example, there's something inside of me when I see the tree not bearing as much fruit that I don't like it. It bothers me. I even start talking to my wife. What's wrong with the tree? What are we going to do to fix the tree? It's not, it doesn't have as many satsumas as last year. We got these Japanese magnolia trees right now. Yes, they're beautiful. Glory to God. Well, one of, our set, one of our Japanese magnolia trees somehow got infected down there at its base. And it doesn't have hardly any blooms. And I went over there and looked at it and it's dying. Listen, immediately inside of myself, I felt sorrowful. It bothered me. And he, I mean, you think it's just a tree. And so I'm like, okay, I got to, even the thought of I got to rip that tree out. I felt something in me that's like, it's not right. And see, where does that come from? It comes from an inherent thing where God promised man from the beginning that he would make us exceedingly fruitful. We know we're supposed to be exceedingly fruitful. That's why when Adam saw his nakedness and didn't see himself clothed in the fruit of God's life, he felt ashamed. That's why he felt afraid. Because he knew he was supposed to be exceedingly fruitful. And now he found himself in the place where he didn't see any fruit. And it was tormenting him. And it convinced him that the father was unhappy with him. And the serpent was there looking at his nakedness, pointing at his nakedness, trying to use it as a sign to get Adam to try to produce his own fruit. You see, because if you take the promise of God, if you take the knowledge that you were created to be exceedingly fruitful, and you take that knowledge and you mix it with the idea that you got to make yourself fruitful, you're walking in darkness, and you're walking in the path of the serpent. That's the way of Cain. Cain was a tiller of the ground. Our bodies were made from the dust of the ground. And what does it mean that Cain was a tiller of the ground? Cain was working his own strength to try to produce good fruit, thinking he could produce good fruit through his own body and then bring that to God and that he would be justified by the good fruit he could produce for God. Abel came with the blood of the lamb, which said, not by my strength, O God, but by you and your strength will I be justified. So we all want to be fruitful. 
The body of Christ would get a lot further if we could put that to the side. Stop accusing people of wanting to be in sin. Stop accusing people of this or that. Come to the place where we all want to be fruitful, but maybe our idea of how that's going to happen is what we need to be talking about. And so that's the million-dollar question. We all want to be fruitful, but how are we going to see the fruit of God's life multiplying in us? How are we going to see not just the blade, not just the ear, but the full corn in the ear? How are we going to see that happen? And that's what I want to put in front of us today. And that's what I wish the body of Christ would start talking about. Because I think the body of Christ as a whole in the world, we talk about the, the world and how corrupt the world is. You guys have to forgive me. I say this with all humility, and I say this knowing I'm part of the body of Christ. The scripture says judgment must first come to the house of the Lord. And judgment does not mean condemnation. It doesn't mean the Lord smiting us or the Lord being unhappy with us. Judgment is a decree or an explanation of the truth. And so the body of Christ needs to first be hit with the truth about how we're going to find ourselves bearing the fruit of God's life. Because then what will happen is we'll find our, the fruit of God's life being multiplied in us. And then do you know what happens when you walk in the world as a tree that's been planted in the rivers of life and you're bearing much fruit even when the sun is scorching the earth? The unbelievers see you walking around full of joy, full of peace, full of love. They see you're not filled with violence or hatred towards them. And they want to know how do you feel this joy? Why are you filled with hope in the midst of a hopeless world? And now you have the opportunity to share the Lord Jesus with them, right? And now you could say, well, let me tell you why I have this great hope. The church is ineffective in the earth because we don't even understand the gospel. We understand historical facts, but we don't understand how the spirit works or how the spirit produces life. We don't understand what produces the works of the flesh in people. We think they just decide they want to do that. Why would Jesus say, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do? So how are we going to find the blade in the ear and the full corn in the ear, right? How are we going to find that? How's that going to happen? Is it going to be by praying? I pray. I'll speak as a fool, like Paul said. I probably pray more than most people. What do you say? I pray in tongues more than all of them. But will it be by praying? Is it praying that's the power? Will it be by the good things that, we do that will cause us to be fruitful. Will it be like some type of karma thing? Where you do good and then you get good? Is that how it's going to happen? Is it going to be from us reading the scriptures a whole lot? Is that how we're going to find the fruit of God's life multiplying in us? Listen, there's nothing wrong with praying and reading the scriptures. There's nothing wrong with the love of God coming out of you towards people around you. In fact, I've found in my life now, now that the Lord has matured my, my, my heart and my thoughts, I find now there's, I used to think the greatest joy was to just feel loved by God. That's when he was growing me up into sonship. Now I find the most beautiful thing in the world is to feel God pouring out of you towards somebody else. The most beautiful thing in the world is to lay down your life for somebody else. The scripture even says it's better to give than to receive. And as you're a child growing up in the Lord, that's not a disparaging term. As you're a child growing up into the Lord, many times you just need to be persuaded you're loved. 
And it's just about you being loved. And it's about you just being persuaded that God isn't ashamed of you, that God's never judged you, that God's never condemned you, that he's always been with you to be the father you need and to give your life the care you need. Sometimes you need that. But when you become persuaded of sonship, you come forth in the power of the spirit. And now you're emptying yourself for other people because the father himself has been born in you. And just like Jesus said, I only do what I see the father do. And I see the father lays down his life for the world. You start finding that born in you where the greatest joy is you laying down your life for other people. And when you feel that happening inside of you, that's when you're really knowing God. Because knowing God isn't an intellectual thing. It's an experiential knowing that you have on the inside of you because you're feeling exactly what God feels. Which what God feels is it's better to give than to receive. <laughs> now, you can't work that as a program. And this is where the body of Christ has gotten it wrong. We try to work it externally. We can see externally, well, it's better to give than to receive. And then we tell people, you got to do that then. Don't understand how fruit's born. You can't work God. You can only let God do a work in you. We've been trying to work God, right? God's not a program. He's not a principle that you work. He's not like a cosmic slot machine that you put something in and you pull a handle so you can get something out. You guys have to forgive me. So it's not, it's, there's nothing wrong with praying or reading the scriptures, but it isn't actually in just praying or reading the scriptures. It's the heart behind. It's what's in our heart as we do those things that matters. Right? What is in our heart when we're reading the scriptures? What are we looking for when we're reading the scriptures? Are we looking for some principle we're supposed to work so we can find life? Because that's what Jesus said about the Pharisees. You search the scriptures for in them you think you have life, but I am what they speak of and you won't come to me that I might heal you and give you life. So it's the heart behind. What are we praying about? Are we praying according to the truth? Is the truth in our heart and us praying from the truth. The Pharisees prayed more than anyone. They read the scriptures more than anyone. And I promise you, they did not bear the fruit of God's life. In fact, they bore the fruit of the serpent. They were filled with murder and envy and gossiping and backbiting and hatred and all the sort. But they read the scriptures. Listen, I read the scriptures a lot. I didn't read the scriptures as much as the Pharisees did. But they didn't bear any fruit, so it can't just be read the scripture. They prayed all the time. It can't just be prayer. It's about what's in your heart. It's about the truth you're believing, right? That's You could be praying all day long, but if the, your prayer isn't born from the truth, it's bankrupt. It's as filthy rags. You could read the scriptures all day long, but if you're not reading the scriptures according to the spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ, and you're not looking for the spirit in the scriptures, and you're reading the scriptures according to the letter, listen, man, it's as filthy rags. So I want to look at Philippians. The scriptures talk a lot about how to be fruitful, but I thought I'm going to look at Philippians here. Philippians chapter 2. We'll just look at a couple of passages that I think most Christians know. And we'll just kind of break those up. Philippians chapter 2, verse 12 and 13. Philippians chapter 2, verse 12 and verse 13. 
And as, as I normally do, I'm going to read from the King James, not because I'm legalistic about which translation you read. I read many translations. I just grew up reading the King James, so it's easier for me to discern what's being said by reading that. But verse 12, Wherefore, this is the Apostle Paul talking, Wherefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation. <laughs> with that word work, man, we struggle with interpreting that according to the Spirit. Right? There's the word work according to the letter, the way the Pharisees would read it, and then there's the word work according to the mind of Christ, the way the Spirit would read it. Okay? Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God which works in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Now, Paul, notice Paul talks about obeyed, that they had obeyed, right? Not in his presence only, but in his absence. They had obeyed. That means they believed the gospel, right? And I'll, I'll, keep, I'll get into that later. But notice how Paul connects their obedience to fear and trembling. The fear and trembling is a descriptor of their obeying that he's describing. And so Paul says they were obedient. Their obedience was always in fear and trembling, observing the work of God. Which is what fear and trembling means. And we'll get into a whole explanation about that. But Paul says their obedience is that they were in fear and trembling. And the way they were in fear and trembling is they were always observing the work of God. That's what he's talking about. And he's exhorting them to continue in that kind of a thing. He says, you guys obeyed from the beginning because you heard about the work God had done through the Lord Jesus. And that made you still, it put you in fear and trembling and that caused you to walk in the good work of God or that caused you believe in the good work of God. He says, continue in that. Continue in that. Right? So, obedience. Obeying. I think most of us def define obedience and obeying as something that happens outwardly instead of something after the heart, right? But obeying, the obeying Paul's talking about here is something that happened in their heart. And so obeying, real simply put, it's about believing the gospel. That's what it means to obey. It means to believe the, the gospel. If you read in Romans chapter 1, Paul says that his apostleship was given to him from God himself for obedience to the faith. Obedience to the faith. Well, the faith is a belief. How do you obey a belief? How do you work a belief? You believe it. If somebody presents to you a truth, how do you obey the truth? You allow yourself to be persuaded that it's true. If the Lord comes and says to you, listen, man, you can't have life by your own strength. I'm the only one that has life in myself, and you can only have life by letting me give it to you as a gift. How are you going to obey that? That's right. You're going to, okay, Lord Jesus, what you say is true. How are you going to work that? You're going to allow yourself to believe it's true. You guys follow me? So the ministry Paul was given 
The ministry that was given to the great apostle Paul was to preach the faith that was revealed in Jesus Christ. That's why he said he lived by the faith of the Son of God. The faith he saw in the Lord Jesus when the Lord Jesus was nailed to the cross and the Lord Jesus needed to be saved from the death that manifested in his body and he cried out to the Father, into your hands I commit my life. Paul said his apostleship was given to preach that faith. And he says the reason that was what he was given to preach was so people could be persuaded of God's righteousness towards them to serve them with his life and that they would call upon God's name just like Jesus did. That's why Jesus is the author and perfecter of faith. We behold the faith that saves in him. Whose death was he dying? Our death. It was our body of death that came upon him. And in the place of taking on our body of death, he needed to show us how we could be saved from this body of death. As the apostle Paul says, who shall save me from this body of death? And so Jesus showed us how we could be saved from the body of death. And the way he did that was he took our death into himself. And then he allowed himself to be nailed to a tree. And in the place where the Pharisees were saying, where's your God now? Jesus saw God was there with him. And that's why he cried out, into your hands I commit my life. You see, there was no orphan spirit in Jesus. The death in the world couldn't convince him he was alone. And in fact, even in the Gospel of John, in John 12, I think, Jesus said, the day's coming when everyone's going to scatter from me. It's going to look like I'm alone, but I won't be alone because the Father will be with me. Paul says that the spirit of adoption causes us to cry out, Abba. What did Jesus cry out when he was on the cross? How did he do that? The spirit. <laughs> so Paul says, his apostleship was given to persuade people of God's righteousness towards them. To persuade people that God is faithful towards us. Paul's apostleship was to persuade us that while we are unfaithful, while we are dead in sin, while we were sinners, ungodly, God remained faithful towards us. God was still filled with goodness in his heart towards us. And Paul said he was given the faith or his apostleship to preach that. So as people were walking around observing death in the world, they would find something in their heart where they cried out, Abba, into your hands I commit my life. And it isn't just an eternal thing. You desire peace? Father, your father, into your hands I commit my desire for peace. You need joy? You don't make a choice to have joy. You tell God that it's by his power you're going to have joy, and you commit your desire for joy into the hands of God. You commit your desire for love into the hands of God. You commit your desire to be persuaded you're acceptable into the hands of God. That's what it means that you look to God to be the father of your life. The peace you want comes from him. It doesn't come from your choice. So Paul says, I preach this faith to you guys. I put the work of God clearly on display, and that made you still. Fear and trembling is to be made still. And that was your obedience. And as you were obedient then, even so are you obedient now. He says, in the same way you were persuaded by the faith of Jesus Christ, that you can't gather life to yourself. Do you know how we're persuaded that we can't gather life to ourselves? Where do you see Jesus' hands on the cross? Nailed. What could he do with his own hands? Nothing. And what did he inherit? Everything. 
What is he trying to teach us? How did he inherit everything? You know how he inherited everything? By the righteousness of the Father towards him to gift it to him. And the obedience of Jesus, if you want to know what Jesus' obedience was, is he didn't lift one finger to cry and save his own life. He didn't lift one finger to try to clothe himself. But when he needed to be clothed, when they stripped him naked, and he needed to be clothed in the glory of God's life, when he needed to be clothed in glory, when he needed life, he looked to the Father and not to his own hands. So Paul says, in the same way you were persuaded by the faith that was revealed in Jesus when he was on the cross, that you can't gather life to yourself through your own works. That God is with you to be good to you, to justify you from the accusation of the evil one by gifting you with his life. You don't need to be justified to God. You're justified by God. We preach the gospel backwards as if God was the accuser and now we got to be justified to him. But the serpent was always the one accusing. And God come to stand next to us as our advocate to justify us from the accusation of the evil one. And what was the accusation? Where's your God now? You're an orphan. And then there's God. Boom, here I am. We see that in the woman caught in the act of adultery. Who was accusing the woman, Jesus or the Pharisees? Which one was of their father, the devil, Jesus or the Pharisees? Okay, so it was the devil that was accusing the woman, not Jesus. Guess what the Gospel of John begins with? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. So there's Jesus, he's God. There's the sinner thrown down at his feet. Who accused the sinner, God or the devil? What did God do with the sinner? Justified her, removed the accusation, cleansed the temple, removed the sentence of death that was hanging over her. And then when he says, go and sin no more, he's not talking about go and no longer commit any works of the flesh. If you keep reading in the Gospel of John, Jesus calls sin unbelief in God's goodness towards you. So go and no longer believe that you're alone. Go and no longer believe that the Father isn't with you to care for your life. Go and no longer live as an orphan in this world, thinking you have to care for your own life. I take this stuff seriously, man. People's lives are on, on the line. Yes. Amen. And it's what people believe about God that will result in life or death. In the same way you believe those things, Paul says, continue in that belief. Because in continuing to observe the good work of God, you will see this great salvation that has come to you through the Lord Jesus being worked out of you. A long time ago, I decided, well, it's great to be saved eternally, only in the sense of eternal life. But if it's eternal life, that means it's outside of time. That means it's also right now. And if this great salvation has come to me, I desire to have it worked out of me in the here and now. And Paul's giving a detailed explanation about how you can find this great salvation that came to you worked out of you. That's what he's talking about. So in the same way you receive salvation, simply by being still and observing the work of God, the way you'll find that great salvation being worked out of you is the same way by being still and observing the work of God to perfect your life and to cleanse you from the death in the world and to serve you with an indestructible life. That's the song. You walk differently when you think you have an indestructible life. If you think your life can't be harmed, you're not afraid of man anymore. 
if you think your life can't be harmed, something powerful happens where you're even able to love your enemies. <laughs> you see, you can't love your enemy if you're busy worrying about your own life because you're not free to worry about their life. You're either worried about your life or you're worried about somebody else's life. And if you have an indestructible life, you're set free from self-consciousness. You're set free from worrying about your own life. And now it opens your eyes to be concerned about your enemy's life. Even the people trying to kill you, that's what happened in the Lord Jesus. Salvation is a loaded word there. It's God who works in you. Work out your salvation by seeing it's God who has worked salvation in you. And if it's God who's worked salvation in you, then it's God who will work it out of you. So in the same way you beheld the work of God, you continue in your life with God by fixing your eyes on his work to make you fruitful. That's how you continue. As you have begun in the Lord Jesus, so walk ye in him. How did you begin? Did you begin by telling God what you could do for him? Did you begin by producing the fruit of the Spirit? Did you begin by cleaning yourself up from sin? Yeah. Well, that ain't how you begun walking with the Lord Jesus. Then how is it that's how you're going to walk after? <laughs> Double-minded. Double-minded. Tossing the body of Christ to and fro. Double-mindedness. The salvation there is a loaded word. Work out your salvation. And the way it's used there is not referring to the world that's to come. It's not referring to the world that's to come or the life that's to come. That's not what it's talking about right there. You can read in Peter where, where Peter said we were made partakers of the divine nature, which is the very life of God, so that we could be saved or delivered from the lust that's in this world through corruption. And so when the word, Paul uses the word, work out your salvation, the salvation that he's talking about there is talking about deliverance from the sting of death. It's talking about deliverance from the molestation of death, which is what it says in the Greek when you look up that word salvation. It means to be rescued from something that is molesting you. I thought that was interesting that it used that powerful, strong of a word. And so the death in the world was abusing us. Salvation is for us to be saved from the abuse that comes from death. Salvation there is talking about our lives being delivered from the works of the flesh and delivered unto the fruit of the Spirit. It's talking about our flesh being healed from our labors. God said, you'll live by the sweat of your brow. We only focus on healing as I got a cancer healed or I got my leg to grow out. Or I got appendicitis healed. And we can pray and see miracles that way too. But the healing of the flesh is that the flesh was sick with death. And because it was sick with death, it was laboring to try to gather life to itself. The healing of the flesh is for the flesh to be put to rest. No longer laboring to try to make itself fruitful. But calling upon the name of the Lord. And allowing the Lord to come and clothe you in the fruit of life. Salvation is talking about our flesh being healed from its labors. And because it's healed from its labors, there's no opportunity for the works of the flesh. There's no opportunity for hatred if you're no longer laboring for life. If you say, I already have an incorruptible life. 
You won't hate anyone. You'll be delivered from hatred. Right? That's what salvation is. It's about God pampering us with the fruit of the Spirit. Delivering us from the fear of death. The sting of death. Right? So Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And he says, the reason you work out your salvation with fear and trembling is because it's God who works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Well, do you know what God's good pleasure is? Do you know what God's will is for you? For you to bear much fruit. Do you know why? Do you think he wants you to bear fruit so he could be happy with you? He wants you to bear much fruit because he sees it's a nice life to be filled with peace and love and joy. And he desires for you to be able to feel what he feels. He desires for you to be able to know a peace that passes understanding. The kind of peace that isn't at the mercy of what's going on in the world around it. He wants you to know that because he loves you. You're his child. He's not trying to make you fruitful so he can like you. He already likes you. That's why he wants you to be fruitful. That's the good point. God desires for you to be saved from the lust that's in the world from death. And lust, we've equated lust to just the carnal mind, where we say lusting after a prostitute or lusting after sex or lusting after drugs or lusting after alcohol. Those things are the fruit of lust. It's not lust itself. Lust is for you to lust after life through your own strength. That's why it's called the lust of the flesh. Do you know what the flesh lusts after? Life. Do you know what the flesh lusts after? Peace and love and joy. And then when the flesh lusts after peace and love and joy through its own strength, that's when we see the fruit that could be adultery or, or drunkardness or addiction or promiscuity. That's when we see that fruit. That's the fruit of someone lusting after life through their own ability. So that's the will of God. That's his good pleasure. For it's both God who works in you and out of you. His desire that you be saved from corruption, that you be delivered from the lust that's in the world, and that you bear his fruit. That's what Jesus talked about when he said, pray in my name. The Father will give you whatever you ask. I mean, for so long we thought the Father will give me a car. I need a car. I need new tires, Jesus. The Father will give me the job. The Father will give me this. The Father will give me that. Well, Jesus was just talking about him being the vine and us bearing much fruit. The will of the Father is that you be decorated in his peace and his love and his joy because it's nice. And he wants to be able to come and sit next to you at the water and say, isn't this joy nice? Man, you feel that love on the inside? Isn't it nice? He wants to talk to somebody about what he feels. You ever felt something wonderful and you just want to share it with somebody? And then have you ever gone to find somebody to share it with, but they just didn't get it and they weren't lit up like you were? And you felt, oh, I guess it's not as good as I thought. Well, God, man, we, 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 we convinced ourselves that God is so different and we, we can't understand God. But God's the same way. This joy is awesome. This love is awesome. This peace is awesome. This patience is awesome. This long-suffering is awesome. I want someone to be able to know what it feels like so I can talk with them about it and we can rejoice over it. That's his good pleasure. That's his will. So we can read that word work. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. 
And we can read how it says to work out your salvation. And we could immediately read in there our own carnal mind. And we could think that it means we're supposed to keep ourselves from bad behavior. We got to keep ourselves from bad behaviors, don't you know? And we got to produce the fruit of the Spirit. That's the opposite of what he's saying. Paul isn't telling us we got to produce the effects of salvation in our lives. He's telling us how the salvation that's come to us through Jesus can be born in our lives. Paul connects the, the, the fear and trembling with the work of God, which is how the salvation is worked out of you. Fear and trembling. He connects fear and trembling with the work of God and our disposition to God. This is what he's talking about here. How are you standing in relation to God and what you see in God? This is what he's talking about, right? Fear and trembling. It's a word used in the Bible a lot. You know, fear and trembling doesn't mean to be scared or afraid of God. That's not what it means. That's not telling you to be afraid of God. It actually means the opposite. It's a reverential awe for God. That's what fear and trembling. It's talking about your heart seeing God is the Father you always needed and wanted. It's talking about you seeing God is the Father that can give your life the care that he need, you need. You see that he's Father because you're awestruck by the care he's coming and given your life when he sealed you in the Holy Spirit. And you're standing in awe of it. Fear and trembling just means to be made still. And the reason you're made still is because you're awestruck by something. And when were we not still? If you look at the first man, Adam, when was he not still? When he was trying to clothe himself. And then what made him still? When he saw God clothing him with the lamb. The lamb skin. He was awestruck by the goodness of God to come and clothe his nakedness. And that made him still. That was fear and trembling. Right? Your flesh is made still on account of you beholding the goodness of God towards you. And you see, I don't have to enlist my own strength. This guy has emptied himself out to care for me. And you become awestruck. I remember I had this kind of a moment with my dad, this reverential awe. I was a little boy and I used to do these international track meets and junior Olympic stuff where I ran in all these ultra competitive races, even as a little boy. Well, I got really injured in one of the races. And the, the, the injury wasn't just the pain physically, it was emotional. I thought God was the one causing me to be able to run as fast as I could. And he was. But I thought I could never get hurt. And when I got hurt, you know what the devil come and said to me? God was never with you. It was always just you. Well, immediately I became scared senseless to ever run again. But I had all these track meets lined up. I mean, my parents paid for a lot of money for us to fly from Louisiana all the way to New Jersey. Those were expensive tickets. And we had to stay there for like a week. And we had these very serious races coming. And the races are about to come. I didn't want to run. And I was scared of my father. Not fear and trembling. I was afraid. I was afraid to tell him I didn't want to run. Because I thought he would despise me. I thought he would be ashamed of me. I thought that he wouldn't want to call me his son. And so I hid it, and I kept it inside, and I tried to hide it. But we're literally like 30 minutes before when I got to run, and I'm just like petrified. And I just looked up at him. I can't. I don't think I can do it. Because I had PTSD from the injury. And I didn't think God was with me. And I remember to this day thinking that I was going to get the smite of my father. 
Put your big boy pants on. Buck up. Be a man. And I'll never forget, he looked at me and he said, I don't care if you run or you don't run. It doesn't change the way I feel about you or how much I love you. And man, I was just awestruck by the goodness in his heart towards my life. Right? And you know, in that place, a strength came upon me that I did run. And that's what he told me. He said, you're not running for me. You're not trying to earn my love and acceptance. You already have it. And then he did add, he said, I don't think you'll be happy if you don't run. He said, I think you'll regret it. But whether you run or you don't run, you and me, we thick as thieves. I was awestruck, right? I was awestruck. That's what it means to be in fear and trembling. You're awestruck by the magnitude of what God's done in Jesus for you. You're, you can't believe it. First John says, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. John was awestruck. It was fear and trembling. He was awestruck by the love God has for us because he saw God came and conquered death in the flesh. And he saw that God came and gave us of himself his most precious, his most rare gift, which was himself and his immortality. And he was awestruck by that. Fear and trembling. God says in Habakkuk 1, Behold and wonder marvelously, for I will do a work in your days, which you will not believe, though I, it be told to you. Look and wonder marvelously. That's fear and trembling. Fear and trembling is what happens to you when you see God has given you exceedingly abundantly above all you can ask or think. You're made still. Right? The Apostle Paul lived his life in the flesh in constant fear and trembling. Every day he lived awestruck by the goodness that he saw in God towards him. And the reason he lived every day like that, do you know why? He lived in awe of the goodness of God. He encountered the man Jesus on the road to Damascus. Paul was a Pharisee of the Pharisee. He knew the scriptures in and out. And in all his studying of the scriptures, he never once contemplated that God Almighty would make man his temple. Right. He never once could even fathom in his head that God Almighty is going to give me his immortality. I'm going to inherit the fullness of God himself inside of my physical body. Yeah. And then he saw the man Jesus. But that the death that was in him, gone. And not just the death that was in him, gone, but the glory of God's immortality shining forth out of him. And when Paul saw that, he was awestruck. He was in fear and trembling because he couldn't fathom the goodness of God towards him. That this is what God intended to do with his life. Constant fear and trembling. Right? Paul was made still when he saw the great salvation that had come to him. Exodus chapter 14 Verse 13, this is Moses. And Moses says unto the people, Fear not, stand still, and see the salvation of the Lord. Notice how he says, stand still, and see the salvation of the Lord. Stand still, and see the salvation of the Lord. And then what did they see? The Red Sea parted. You think you're awestruck if you see a sea just part? If we all walked out the Lake Pontchartrain right now, and all of a sudden, that thing just parted. You think there'd be some fear and trembling? 
You think you'd be awestruck a little bit? You think you'd be made still trying to figure out what happened here? This is what Paul's talking about. When he's talking about salvation being worked out of you, the fear and trembling is the same thing that Moses says. Stand still, behold the work of God, and you will see salvation manifest in your midst. Behold the work of God and you will see yourself delivered from the corruption that's in this earth, the lust that's in this earth from death. Stand still and see the work of God and you will find the great salvation that has come to you in Jesus Christ being worked out of you. Stand still and behold the work of God to perfect your life from death and braid you together with his indestructible life and you will find an indestructible life bearing fruit in you. I always like boiling everything back to Jesus because he's the word made flesh. Like we know Jesus, the man, the historical figure, but there's also he's the word made flesh, John says. And in Hebrews 5, it describes this very thing with Jesus, the fear and trembling, work out your salvation. In fact, they even want to say that this is just me saying this. I can't point to a verse, but Paul was taught of Jesus. He said he, he walked with the Lord. That's his apostleship. I could see Paul having learned this work out your salvation through fear and trembling through the Lord Jesus. In fact, I could see the Lord Jesus telling Paul, listen, man, the, I worked, the way the salvation was worked out of me when I was on the cross in the midst of the death was through fear and trembling, right? Because I saw the good work of God and I saw that God will not suffer me to see corruption. I saw God will not leave my soul in hell. I saw that God loved me with an everlasting love. And I saw the work God would do to raise me up from the body of death and clothe upon me with his glory and immortality. And so I was in much fear and trembling, even on the cross. I was made still from trying to deliver myself from the body of death. And in that place, the great salvation of God was worked out of me. In that place, the love of God was born in me. In that place, the joy of God was born in me. In that place, the peace of God was born in me. I can see the Lord Jesus teaching Paul this same thing. I mean, why didn't Jesus think he needed to come down off the cross himself? He was made still by beholding the work God would do to raise him up out of the grave. Isn't that how Jesus loved the world, by laying down his life for the world? Well, how was that worked out of the Lord Jesus? He saw he didn't have to preserve his own life. The Father would raise him up out of the grave. That allowed him to be at rest and to lay down his life. Love was worked out of him through fear and trembling. He beheld the good work of the Father. That was the joy that was set before him, that the Father would clothe him in immortality. It says that the... He disesteemed the death of the cross. His heart disesteemed the death of the cross. The, the, the psalmist says, speaking of Jesus prophetically in Psalm 16, my flesh rests in hope. For you shall not suffer your Holy One to see corruption. Neither will you leave his soul in hell. And so at the cross, Jesus' heart disesteemed the death that had come upon him because he saw the glory the Father was going to bring forth in him. He was in fear and trembling. He was made still by the work the Father would do to glorify him. That produced joy. See, that, that will confound your mind. We don't think you could have joy if you're nailed to a tree. How many of you think you can have joy if you're nailed to a tree? And if you really want to weigh the question of whether or not God expects you or wants you to produce fruit yourself, Ask yourself if you can produce joy when you're nailed to a tree. 
If you really think God expects you to produce love for your enemies, ask yourself if you can love and pray for the person while they're nailing you to a tree. <laughs> hey, I came to the place where I realized I cannot, Lord, only by you. <laughs> only God can do that in somebody. Only God himself can do that. It becomes real simple when you see it that way. Ephesians 2 says that we are God's workmanship. And we're going to finish with this. It says we're God's workmanship. It doesn't say we're our own workmanship. And now we're going to work ourselves into a place of salvation. And then we're going to come to God and he's going to be happy with us. It says that we're God's workmanship. And the workmanship God is after is forming Christ Jesus inside of us. Forming his life inside of us. That's what he's after. Right. Paul talked about uh, in Galatians, quote that again in Galatians, where he said, I, I, I do not cease laboring till Christ be fully formed in you. And what was his labor? The preaching of the faith of the son of God. This only would I ask you, received ye the Holy Spirit by your own works or by the hearing of the faith? As you begun in Christ Jesus, so walk ye in him. Right? So Ephesians 2 says we're the workmanship of God. That means it's God's good work that creates us in the image of Christ Jesus, in the likeness of his life. It's God who decorates us in his life. It's the good work of God that forms within us the fruit of the Spirit. It's the good work of God that delivers us and keeps us from the death that's in the world and the works of the flesh. It's the good work of God. More of us will be set free from the works of the flesh if we would understand it's the good work of God. And if we understood that God didn't despise us when he finds us with the works of the flesh in our lives, and we understood that he was there with us to be the God that we need, because what do we need when we're in the works of the flesh? We need to be saved from it. Well, if we call him God, doesn't that mean he's the one who saves us? And if we paint a picture of God that we can't come to him when we have the works of the flesh in our lives, how are we ever going to be saved? God's not ashamed of you when he finds you that way. He ever liveth to be the father you need. So w w w the, work, the work of God, first, but it's, but it's God who works. What's the workmanship of God? We see God's workmanship in the resurrected, glorified man, Jesus. And what we see, we see the way he brings forth his fruit in us is through the faith that was revealed in this man, Jesus. Jesus is the substance of what we desire in our lives. Jesus is the, what we see in Jesus is what we want in our lives. Isn't it? We all agree with that, don't we? Well, how did it happen for Jesus? He saw the work of the Father. Even when the rich young ruler came to Jesus and called him good master, observing the life of Jesus and thinking Jesus was good because of the fruit he saw. What did Jesus say? There's one who's good. If you think, if you think, if you see something beautiful coming out of my life, don't think I produced it. It's the Father that produced it in me. And the only thing I did was I stood in fear and trembling, knowing that the Father would decorate me in the fruit of his life. And I didn't look to my own strength to try to produce good fruit. Jesus is the substance of what we desire to see in our lives. And just as we are saved, 
from death by looking to the faith that was authored by Jesus, the way we're going to see salvation worked out in our lives in the here and now is by continuing to look to Jesus and the faith that was revealed in Jesus and the good work God did in Jesus. God has already perfected your life. He has. Your life has already been perfected from death. And do you know what our lives as Christian involve? Learning how that's true. Because everything in this world tells you your life has not been perfected from death. One thing you lack. Just do this, and then you can be cleansed from death. But the Bible says we were sanctified once for all time. We're perfected once for all time by the blood of the Lamb. The war that happens happens inside of our hearts. Us not being persuaded we have an indestructible life. Us not being persuaded that we have all things that pertain to life and godliness. Mm-mm-mm. That's how salvation's worked out of us. It's a simple thing. The sting of death is sin. And so the way salvation from sin or the works of the flesh would happen in you is for you to see you've been perfected from death by the hand of God. That's why the psalmist says, the Lord is my shepherd, I do not lack. As you allow God to persuade you by the work he's done in Jesus that you lack nothing that's needed for life and godliness, you will find salvation being worked out of you by the hand of the Lord. Lack is what keeps you from having salvation manifest out of you. You're persuaded you lack. That contradicts what God said. So God says he has perfected you, and you're busy telling God you lack. No way, you and me both, sister. The Lord corrected me, and I love that correction. What do you mean I don't lack? Look at all these things. He said, Greg, you're living as if the world is the father of your life. But you're in the world, but your life isn't of the world. And if your life is hidden with me in Christ, then how can you lack anything? I was like, most of us are looking to the wrong places to find testimonies about our life and whether we have everything we need. God gave a testimony about our life when he raised Jesus from the dead. That's the gospel. Believe the testimony God gave. And as you continue to behold that testimony, salvation will be worked out of you, and you will find the life of God manifesting out of you. Right? Does that make any sense? Well, glory to God. We'll finish there. Thank you guys for your, your patience and your love and your laboring with me as I labor with the Lord. Um, we'll just pray. Lord, what a beautiful thing that you come and, and showed us that you're our Father. Lord, we, we struggle to even wrap words around that. Lord, but we know that even if we can't express it, your Spirit is in our hearts to show us that you're with us as the Father we need, that you're with us having given our lives the care that they need. I just thank you, Lord, that your Holy Spirit bring forth fear and trembling in all of us fear and trembling in everyone that hears this message, that we be made still by our eyes being fixed on the wonderful, marvelous work you performed in Christ when you raised him from the dead and perfected us from death and served us with your indestructible life. Thank you, Father, that we can live all the days of our lives beholding you and what you've done to perfect us from death. Thank you, Lord, for your testimony. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Glory to God. Y'all are awesome. Have a great day.